You will take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 65. We are on the home stretch of our study through the book of Isaiah. And I'm not, I have lost count as to exactly when we started. And Lord willing, we will uh, finish with the next message. And I trust that it has been enlightening. I, I hope that it has given you a sense of understanding about the scriptures in general, as Isaiah is a very central portion of the Word of God as we have it. Helps us understand so much of the New Testament, and it helps us create a context for God's people as they have been walking with Him, and even in the times when they weren't walking with Him throughout the history of his chosen people. Uh, this past week, as we celebrated Christmas, you may have uh, the same sort of uh, traditions where during this season there, there might be certain uh, movies that kind of capture the thought of Christmas. And there's things, there, there are those that you, you know, if you have an opportunity, I know it's really busy without the holiday season going on, but there might be uh, things that you, I want to make sure I see this movie, like, uh, when a wonderful life comes out, you know, I, that's one of those movies that I like to see. Uh, this past week, I was actually just sort of going through YouTube and found that uh, somebody had uh, loaded or uploaded the movie, uh, The Homecoming, which uh, I'm going to embarrass myself and maybe lose a man card for this. Uh, one of the things I remember growing up watching uh, during the Christmas season was the Waltons. It was basically their pilot movie and it was about the Christmas season and I saw I found that on YouTube so I watched it the, the whole thing uh, Amy was busy get, you know doing her you know getting ready for whatever was going on on Christmas Day uh, and I was lazily watching the in my chair uh, this movie that brought back a lot of emotions for me and if you are well, some of you don't even know who the Waltons are but that's okay for those of you who do you might recall when it was on television I, that was one of the programs that my, my mom at least would watch uh, regularly and I remember growing up and, and, it, and the reason it appealed to me and perhaps you share this is that it sort of it, it was it, it seemed to be very authentic all four of my grandparents grew up during a very hard time in our country uh, and so when I listened to them talk and I watched them live, I would watch this program that depicted the day in which they were, you know, young adults in their life. And it, and it made sense. I could relate to that, even though I didn't grow up in that period. And there's just something about whether it's that movie or any other type of literature that you may read uh, or hear somebody talk. And it, and it puts you back and it's and, and whatever is being communicated, whether it be through a movie or whether it be through a conversation, it, it appeals to you. It, it's authentic. Now, the only problem that as I grew older about the Waltons, now again, I hope I don't get in trouble with anybody here, uh, but even though they would use terms like church and Baptist and Methodist uh, and God and prayer, as I was growing up, I would scratch my head thinking, well, I'm not hearing that same sort of conversation when I go to church. Now, I'm not saying that the church that I went to was perfect, but I'm just saying there were things that didn't match up. And as I grew even older as an adult now, I look back and see that there was a very naturalistic perspective and a worldview that they had that would include God. But at the same time, they weren't so particular about who this God was. 
And that's dangerous, right? That we can be so caught up in the emotional stir of an authentic presentation of life that just even without even thinking about it, you're given some sort of impression about what truth is and it really isn't. It makes you feel good. I don't remember never an episode of the Waltons where they didn't go to bed calling each other by, by name. They, they were in a bad mood about anything. But at the same time, there wasn't any biblical authoritative presentation as to what the truth about God was. Good people love their neighbors, but yet there was a philosophy of life that was woven within the script of that program. Whether they had, whether the writer had some sort of mean ambition or not, I don't. I really don't care. But it was misleading. And we live in a world where we relate on a daily basis. With even as Tim was talking about the country of Mexico, that that's estimated that 95% of the people think they know who God is because of what they know about Jesus or whatever they've been taught. And really a very vast majority have no clue about what the gospel is. And we work with people like that. We live next door to people like that. We, are, we spent some time with family members who are like that this past week over the holidays. That's dangerous. And even though something like the Waltons appealed to people's emotions and, 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 and their authentic presentation of what life was like and thinking about the good old days or maybe not so much the good old days, but at least I remember how that used to be. It's a temptation even for preachers. And I would even include Isaiah as a prophet in that sense where you, you want to gain the attention. You, you want to present your point so badly that you'll go to any means necessary to try to appeal to them. By using stories or, or using uh, illustrations or using those types of... Now those things aren't in themselves wrong. I mean, thankfully, part of the message last Sunday when Pastor Charlie was talking about going into that barn as a young boy and, and watching uh, you know, the animals in the, in the barn, that was authentic. I could relate to that, even though I never did that as a young boy. I was a little afraid to do that in my part of the country. But he wasn't doing that in a sense to try to you know, you know, bait and switch, try to get you to think something, and then all of a sudden you realize you're thinking something else. But what was happening to the people of Israel, living even in the promised land, they had lived there so long and they'd listened to so many prophets and priests take the Word of God and mingle it with the gods of the other nations and appeal to their worst senses and their worst emotions and their worst desires because they wanted to be like the other nations. God warned them about that. And Isaiah comes along in the period of Israel's history in which they have already, in many ways, have been lost. Because they were now pursuing. It wasn't just that they were mingling their God in with the others, but they were just downright going to the high places and, and worshiping the false idols, false gods. So when he comes along, Isaiah has a really difficult task at hand. And the only thing that he is armed with in his ability to confront 
the people where they are and the need that they have is the unadulterated truth of God's word. And as we come to the end of his recorded message, we look back and just stand in all of the things that we now understand centuries later. But in the generation in which he was speaking, he would have been doing just as well to be speaking to the column holding up the ceiling over there. Or talking to the carpet in this room. Very frustrating. But we understand that that was his calling. Again, we're reminded in chapter 6, verse 9, God said, go say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God said, make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God was pronouncing judgment on these people because of their sin. Chapter 29, verse 10, he goes on to say, For the Lord has poured out upon you a deep, a, a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, speaking of the prophets, and covered your head, speaking of the, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read it, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. That would be very frustrating. Preach a message that you know is true from a God that you believe in and you, have, and you place in your complete faith in. But what you say is like, read it. Well, I can't because I can't open the book. I can't see it because I'm blind. I can't hear it because I'm deaf. Now, when we come to Isaiah chapter 65, in the midst of this frustration for Isaiah... We are reminded as the last message that we were in chapter 64, uh, and actually part of chapter 63, in which there's a prayer. God help us. Understanding the situation that we are in. Understanding that we need you. Again, verse 15 of chapter 63, Isaiah says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from us. Isaiah understood the desperate situation and condition that they were in. Chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Verse 12. Will you restrain yourself with these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? Will you afflict us so terribly? And while there are some commentators who believe that there is a distinction between what we leave in chapter 64 and verse 65, most commentators would agree that chapter 65 is God's response to those requests and to those feelings of anxiety and frustration of will you, will you indeed leave us this desperate? Will you indeed be silent? Will you indeed afflict us so terribly? In chapter 65, I believe, again, we see where we get the response from the Lord. So let's read. Verse 1, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. 
I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. A people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their own iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord. Because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills, therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine, uh, new wine is found in the cluster and one says, do not destroy it for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen one shall inherit it and my servants will dwell there. Sharon will be the pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of, with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will, be remembered, will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at an age of 100 and one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build another and another, I'm sorry, they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask for your blessing upon the word. We thank you for this gift. We pray, Lord, now that the spirit who has given it to us and has inspired it will now teach us. 
I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be warmed over by your truth. I pray that we would be warmed over by your love. And I pray, Lord, that we would be armed with faith and hope so that as we are prepared for your service, we will rejoice in you and share you with those we come in contact with. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The first thing we see here, I believe, in response to this declaration of God's people, will you leave us afflicted? Will you keep silent? Is a fitting judgment. The first 12 verses, it's probably not what was expected, but it's both a source of comfort, but also it's a source of conviction. The first two verses, we see a distinction between those who find what they did not ask or look for and who follow their own devices. Two different groups of people. People who found what they weren't looking for and then people who were seeking after their own devices. Two different groups of people that God is addressing here. Verse 1, I was ready to be sought or uh, it could be better translated or I've been shown by those who did not ask for me and I was ready to be found or rather have been found by those who did not seek me. As God says, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Now that would be the ones who found God but wasn't looking for him. And then there's a group of people who are looking after their own devices who God says in verse 2, I spread up my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way that's not good following their own devices. Now to help put this in context, I refer back to one of my favorite commentaries, the New Testament. In Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes from this passage of Scripture. Now, you might not be as familiar with this quotation that is at the end in verses 20 and 21 of Romans chapter 10. But you may be familiar with chapter 10 in the sense that you know, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And who can call upon the name of the Lord upon which they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher, right? And how beautiful are the feet of those who spread the gospel of peace, right? We're familiar with that portion, but we have to keep in mind that as Paul was telling us those very familiar passages, and even passages that are part of that familiar Romans road to salvation, that he's using it within the context of God saving someone other than the descendants biologically of Abraham. That the people who actually respond to his grace are people he's calling by his grace that are those who he promised Abraham would be blessed by him. You recall? It hasn't been that long in Christian growth group that we were looking at Abraham and, and God gave him promises and, and promises of, uh, to be a, a, a large nation and that he would have a land, but he also promised that, that, that through Abraham... All the nations of the world would be blessed. And he wasn't talking about that they would have a lot of money, that they'd have a lot of food and, and water, that they would have nice houses to live in. He was talking about a blessing in the person of Jesus Christ, through whom they would find salvation. And so here in Isaiah chapter 65, God's response to his people, when those, as Isaiah is re representing says, will you keep us afflicted forever? Will you be silent forever? God says, well, let me just remind you. <laughs> There's been a group of people who were rebellious doing their own thing that I've been stretching my hands out all along. While there are going to be other people, they're going to see me. They're going to hear me. They're going to know me. Not because they were asking for me, 
But because of my divine plan from before the foundations of the world, I chose them. And they find me. So there's a distinction at the onset of this response of two different groups of people. In verses 3 through 5, as well as verses 11 through 12, just quickly, we see a description of those who were worshiping pagan gods, in other words, their own devices. We, we have descriptions of people who, as God puts it in verse 3, people who provoke me to my face continually. Over and over again, their actions, their religious actions are nothing but provoking me. Not pleasing me. Not satisfying me. But provoking me. Now what would they be doing that would provoke them? Or provoke God to his face? Well, some were sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Some were going out into the tombs. Some were considering themselves so holy that they couldn't touch anyone else because they were holier than everyone else. There were those who were forsaking the holy mountain of God, but they were setting a table for two gods that here in the text, depending on what translation you have, you might have uh, the, the word just transliterated from Hebrew, or you might have a translation of it uh, into basically, as I was reading through it, and I think the, the ESV also has it, as the New American Standard does, as or fortune and destiny. Now these are two gods that have a relationship with the Babylonian gods that they would have found in exile. Now, again, they didn't need to go shopping for gods in exile. I mean, the people of Israel have always had a good shopping area for, for false gods. You remember when they were in slavery in Egypt, there were a host of gods down there that they could pick and choose from. Uh, there were also, when they did go to, to captivity, whether it be the Assyrian captivity or the Babylonian captivity, there was a host of gods that they could have shopped through to figure out which one they wanted most there. And even in the land of Canaan, because they didn't destroy all the people, as God told them to, there was a host of different gods that they could have chose from there. And so regardless of which gods they were choosing, it just so happened, I think it's very interesting, and particularly when we translate it, that God, God says in verse 11, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, let me tell you what your destiny is going to be. It's not a good one. And while we have a description of what that looks like, we have absolutely no way of relating to that. We, even our false worship in this world in which we live doesn't look like that. But it's just as provoking to God. We've just gone through a season which people, that, not us, but everyone else during this holiday season are expecting gifts or are entitled to gifts or are, you know, they just buy their own gifts. Reflects in the heart what we worship. Now, I don't want to be too harsh because I trust that when we give gifts and when we share gifts with one another, we do it out of love and compassion. We do it because we love the other person. We want to entice them. But let's face it. Most of everything that we give and receive are things that we don't need and things that we could just pursue on our own, right? I, I hope I didn't squash your Christmas spirit there, but I just, I, I just want to be realistic about when it comes to what we worship. The things that we pursue. It might not be setting up a little table over here for a false God to come down and somehow demonstrate his consummation of it. 
Or it may not be structuring a little idol with a face on it so that we can picture what this God may look like who's going to give us rain for our crops. But anything, and I mean anything, that's not the God of the Bible is a provocation to the God of the Bible. We can't add anything to him without provoking him. He is the one true God. And whether it comes to Christmas season or any other day of your life, when you start pursuing something or start enjoying something or start wanting something more than Him or start looking for a different source of any of that stuff other than Him, we're provoking Him. Because of who He is. Now, that doesn't mean that we just have blinders on and all we think about is God, 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 God. You know, we think about Jesus. We think of, that, That's not what I'm talking about. But if the pursuits of our life ultimately bring us to an end other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we're provoking God. And if we think that somehow we can take the God of the Bible and somehow just sort of paint him a different way so that someone else may be a little bit more comfortable or maybe it looks like theirs or maybe it, it's something that they can tolerate, we've just, we've just taken God out of the picture and we have, as it says here, provoke him. One commentary helps us, or at least helps me understand, but through this obstinate, an unyielding rejection of his, speaking of God's love, they have, speaking of the children of Israel, have excited wrath, which, though long and patiently suppressed, now bursts forth with irresistible violence. God's had it. Stretch my hands out looking for people, and you have rebelled. You've been going on your own way. Done. You want to sit around saying you don't understand anything, that you don't hear anything? It's because of your sin. Long-suffering ends. Destruction pronounced. And thankfully, that's not the end of the message. Back in verse 6. We see a declaration to save a remnant for those who sought him. You remember back in chapter 64, will you be silent? Well, he says in verse 6 of chapter 65, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together. They made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster. Wait a minute, don't destroy all of it. There's something good in there. Even though the grapes of wrath, it's a picture of destruction. The Lord says, just as those who would say to those making new wine out of the cluster. Don't destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring them forth. I will bring forth offering rather from Jacob and from Judah's possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. 
You see it again back in chapter 63, verse 17. The call to the Lord was, Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for, your, for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. They were calling upon God and God responds. Just as I will not just destroy grapes for the sake of destroying grapes, I will save that new wine that's produced from crushing the grapes. There's a remnant that I will save. Those who will hear me, those who will serve me, as he calls them his servants. Again, we see a picture of this even in, in, in New Testament writing. In, in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, uh, it would be easy to say, well, okay, well, if God is calling out a people that didn't ask for him and, and he's been stretching out his arms and they've rejected him, then does that mean he's going to leave Israel alone? Well, in chapter 11, verse 1 of Romans, Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. Paul says, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. But, that's not the only ones that God will call and save. And we all should shout a hearty amen to that. We should all rejoice in being recipients of the blessing that comes through Abraham and his seed. So even though, while God has made a distinction between two different groups of people, those who reject him and those who will hear him because he seeks after them, and describes what these people who were, being re, or who were rejecting him will face, he says, I'm saving by my grace a remnant. And what's in store for this remnant? Well, in verses 13 through 25, we see what a faithful master is promised. And I want us to notice that here in verse 13 as well as in verse 15, there's a word that God is using for himself that's different from the ones he's been using for the most part, and which he says, therefore, thus says the Lord God. You say, well, isn't that sort of redundant? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. And that's the point. It's not that I'm just the Lord, Jehovah, your God, the covenant God with Abraham. Not only am I Jehovah, but I am the Lord God who's saying this. I'm the Lord who is over it all. The term Adonai would often be used by the Israelites in a way in which they wouldn't have to say the word Jehovah. But when you put them two, the two together, it's emphatic. It's making a point. And in talking about the judgment of those who reject him, he says, now therefore, thus, this is what Adonai Yahweh says. Behold, and check out the lifestyle of my servants. They're going to eat. They're going to drink. They're going to rejoice. They're going to sing for gladness of heart. They're going to live in a land of blessing. Those who are being cursed, those who are being punished, those who are being condemned because of their rejection of God, they're going to be hungry, they're going to be thirsty. They're going to be put to shame. They're going to cry out for pain of heart and they're going to wait for a breaking of that awful, painful spirit. And the name that they once held so proudly 
God's going to give it to somebody else. It's going to be a different name. But that which they were known for being the children of Abraham, and when you and again, I'm thinking about as Tim has been leading us to the Gospel of John. But throughout Jesus' life, it doesn't matter which gospel you're talking about. The Israelites in Jesus' day were so arrogant and proud, thinking that simply because they were descendants of Abraham, they were right with God. And yet you read here in Isaiah 65 that I'm taking that name away from you. It's not your name. Even though they were biologically descendants of Abraham, they had rejected his God. The name no longer belonged to them and he was going to give it to another name, but not yet that name, he's going to give them another name. And what's the occasion for this all? Well, in verse 17, for behold, I'm creating new heavens and a new earth. I create Jerusalem to be a joy. We studied earlier about what Isaiah had to say about the new Jerusalem and, and understanding what that portrays for us in the future. And God says, I'm sorry, the Lord God says that he will rejoice forever in that which he creates. And he's going to create Jerusalem to be a joy for her people, to be a gladness. And he's going to rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in his people. And there shall no, not be heard anymore the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. There's not going to be any more infants that are going to last for just a few days. There won't be people who won't live out their life. There's going to be people who their lifespan will be the years of a tree. Now, hopefully it's not some of the trees that we have growing right here that, you know, uh, die quickly. Uh, but those who, when you let, think about, you know, you, look, you go to California and you think about those huge redwoods. They've been around for hundreds of years. Well, you just go back and look at the genealogies earlier before the flood and you think about how long people were living for centuries. People are going to work and they're not going to have to worry about whether or not they're going to be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. In other words, inheritance will be gone by because you're actually going to be able to live through it. There won't be any building of a house that you won't be able to live in as long as it's there. This is a different world. This is a new heaven. This is a new earth. Even nature itself is going to be different. It's the reason why I can look at a YouTube video of a, a huge tiger and say, I want one of those. I don't want one right now because I want to live out the rest of my days. But there's coming a day when the wild animal is going to eat grass. When the dangerous animal like a snake, I don't have to worry about running out from as we were talking about in our class earlier today. And there shall not hurt or they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now, <laughs> it would not be proper for me to go through this message talking about the things that I just did without sort of setting some things in order because there's some different ways you can take this. Tim's shaking his shoes back there, I can tell. No, I'm just kidding. But there's different ways that you could take this. And I assure you, you can read different commentaries that will take it different ways. And there's at least three. One way you could take this is, okay, well, Isaiah is talking about a message of hope so that when the people are in exile, they'll know that when they go back to the land of promise, 
That these things will they'll be like a new world that they, they, that they never lived in before. And to some of them it would be because they were born in captivity. They were born in exile. So that when they go back to Jerusalem, when they return with Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, that this is going to be such a, a different world. And this is just like poetic language. That you don't have to worry about anybody taking you out into exile again. You'll be able to live in your house. You'll be able to grow your crops without having to worry about anybody raiding you. So there's that literal translation that we could have. Or it could be just simply metaphorical. It could be this is just giving us a picture of what life is like in Christ, the Messiah. There's a completely different existence that you have. And that your life will be blessed and abundant as if you were living in a new world. And there's that little prophetical emphasis that you could have. That this is somehow talking about whether it be a thousand year reign of Christ and things are going to be completely different during that thousand year reign or whether it be something that's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns and ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. You say, well, right, Mark, which one do you fall in? Well, some of you might think that you know where I'm at. I'm not real sure sometimes. But I think that this passage of Scripture are just like a number of passages of Scripture in Isaiah that you could answer yes to all three. You see, there was a day in which when people thought that when the Messiah came that he was going to overthrow all the government in which they would ask, Jesus, are you now going to set up your kingdom? You see, there was a connection made between the suffering Savior and the victorious sovereign Savior who was going to rule on the throne of David. There were those who missed the whole point thinking that Israel was the servant and that, well, the Messiah still hasn't come yet. But in Jesus' day, there was a number of people that thought different things. I personally believe that there are parts of each of these, that there was a time when the people did go back to the land of Israel after exile, that they found it to be a new world. I do believe that in Christ, my life is completely different. And even though I live in a world of sin and darkness, and sometimes as we just sang, it seems like darkness veils his lovely face. that my life's different. I'm at peace with God because even though I live in a world of sin, I've got hope. But I'm so happy to know that there's still yet a fulfillment in which there is a day coming. In which there is a new heaven and then there is a new earth coming that I'm going to be able to live in forever and ever and ever. It's not going to be a figure of meditation. It's not just going to be a dream. It's not just symbolic talk. That it's real. Just as real as hell is going to be real for those who are without Christ, there is a heaven that's going to be just as real for me to enjoy with Christ in the middle of it. So whichever way you want to take it, and whichever one you want to argue for, then have at it. But you know what? I hope that you will enjoy all three. Ways of looking at that, of understanding that this is painting a picture of a faithful master who is not only going to judge his people when they reject him, but is a gracious master who's going to save a remnant and show himself to be glorious even in redeeming his people through Jesus Christ. That is something worthy to worship him for.
And just as I did during our last message from chapter 64, I want to give a strong word of utterance from the book of Revelation because I think that there is a huge, huge connection between the two. Though separated by centuries, both intrigue us with words of both things that we can see in history, yet things that we can only imagine in our minds. But bring us to an understanding that just as Isaiah is talking about this new heaven and new earth, John speaks about a new heaven and a new earth. In Revelation chapter 21, I'd like for you just to turn there with me, please, as we get closer to the end. But Revelation chapter 21 John says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I don't think he's coming up with new terminology. I think he's using the same thing that Isaiah is speaking about. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. That sounds almost like what Isaiah was saying, right? And there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Oops, we see that in Isaiah. Coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. John writes these things as things that have yet to come. But yet things that he saw as if they were. And while my hope is not in the place of heaven, my hope is laid in knowing that Jesus Christ, my Savior, has promised me this new heaven and new earth. And the reason why it's going to be glorious for me is not because it's going to be an absence of tears, an absence of pain, but because... God is among them. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And all these other benefits he'll take care of. But before we get to that, this passage in Revelation, there's a lot of information, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, that speak to the churches that were there. Churches who knew the difference between right and wrong. The, church, the churches that knew what things to stay away from and abstain. Churches that had everything in order, but yet there were churches that needed to repent. Because there were things that weren't right. They were allowing teachers to come in and, and mingle the, the heresies with the truth of God's word. They were allowing people to speak that weren't authorized by God to speak from his word. They were allowing things to happen within the church. The most familiar one, they were, had forgotten their first love. There's a number of things within at least, or at least in five of those seven churches that we can relate to. There's two churches that we have a problem relating to because, well, there wasn't anything that the Savior found that he had to rebuke them for. But I ask you today, not because it's timely and all. Hey, this is the end of the year. We need to start thinking about resolution. Uh, as one church sign, and you know how I like church signs. 
and how cynical I am. I did actually see one that expressed at least a good sentiment. I thought that would be helpful. That instead of making annual resolutions, we need to make sure we're making daily devotion. Now, that's not in Scripture anywhere, so don't you know, hold anybody to that. But what would that call for? That would call for us to, as the Scriptures tell us, to examine ourselves. To see if we truly be in the faith. To ask ourselves, what are we pursuing in life? What are the things that we're passionate about? I'm not asking you to set goals for next year. I'm not asking you to resolve anything for some future date. I'm asking you right now, what is your heart set on? As I thought about the song that we sang at the end of our, well, not at the end of, but during our Christmas Eve service, while we were waiting, come. Not while we were waiting, can we get this accomplished? While we were waiting, can we get this taken care of? But while we were waiting, God, would you come? See, those are the closing words of the Apostle John when he, wrote, when he finished up Revelation. Lord, I know you're coming. Come on. Come quickly. Is that what our hearts set on? That'll purify a lot of our, 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 our living. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. To rejoice in the Lord's coming, we will purify our hearts as others who look for His coming. It'll keep us pure because, as Paul puts it, as we look for His the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we will do as the Bible teaches us, that we will live godly and soberly and righteously in, in this present age until He comes back. You see, if we're looking for Jesus Christ to come back, if, we're, if, if we have that longing, Lord, what, how long will we, will we remain afflicted in this world that's fallen by sin? Lord, how long are we going to keep struggling with the flesh, with the sin and the temptation that comes around? How long are we going to have to keep dealing with the, the inconveniences that come about because of the consequences? How long? And God graciously says, My servants... We'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, please quickly come.